New York ain't New York anymore. How I miss those old pals of mine. Before he won 10 World Series titles with the New York Yankees, Lawrence Peter Yogi Berra entered a higher team's calling to serve his country in World War II. It was a role in the Navy that ultimately led him to be in a rocket boat supporting the Normandy landings. We'll learn more about Yogi and other ball players who served our country in that darkest hour. But first, hello, history lovers, and welcome. I'm your host, Dean Carianis, and this is the History Author Show on iHeartRadio. And a special tip of the hat for everybody watching today's special time travel adventure via our YouTube channel. Visit me at historyauthor.com. You can find me across social media platforms, and you can read my columns in the New York Sun to get my analysis of current events through the lens of all I've learned from these books on the shelves behind me. My column in the Sun on June 6th of 2022, which was the 78th anniversary of D-Day, looked at Yogi Berra's service and it spread the word about the event you'll be enjoying today. It was a roundtable discussion held at the Yogi Berra Museum and Learning Center, conducted in partnership with the Bob Feller Active Valor Foundation. It was titled, Sacrifice and Courage, a Tribute to D-Day. I was honored to act as the moderator for the conversation, and it was streamed all around the world and to all our ships at sea. Little old me, your humble narrator, everybody. Our panel in Little Ferry, New Jersey, featured Raymond Mabus Jr., the 75th Secretary of the Navy, Rear Admiral Edward Sonny Masso, Luke Eplin, who is the author of Our Team, the epic story of four men and the World Series that changed baseball, and Larry Berra, who's the son and namesake of Yogi. Several members of the Bob Feller Active Valor Foundation were also on hand to make this event possible, or to quote Yogi Berra, to make this event necessary. Feller, like 38 other major leaguers, including Yogi, put down his bat and picked up a gun to answer his nation's call. You can learn more about the legacy of these ball players at activevalorward.org and at yogibaramuseum.org. One note for those of you watching via that YouTube channel, today I'm wearing my USS Theodore Roosevelt cap, and behind me, you can see Tim Brady's book on the 26th president's namesake, who stormed the Normandy beaches as the highest ranking officer, he was a general, and the oldest man to go ashore that day. You could find our interview about that book. It's called His Father's Son, The Life of General Ted Roosevelt Jr. It's in our archives wherever you're listening now, or you can stream it at historyauthor.com. Now that we've found our seats in the grandstand at the wonderful Yogi Berra Museum and Learning Center on the campus of Montclair State University, let's join our panel for Sacrifice and Courage, a tribute to D-Day. Baseball, the American pastime. Today, we honor the boys of summer who left their fields of dreams to serve the nation and go into harm's way. On this anniversary of D-Day, June 6, 1944, we join a distinguished panel to discuss service and sacrifice. Will the guests please rise for the presentation of the colors and, and of the national anthem. Red glare, the bombs burn. 
does that star-spangled banner yet wave o'er the land of the Play ball. Will the guests take their seats, please? Thank you very much. Thank you to the United States Merchant Marine Academy Color Guard and to Midshipman Tira Graber for her singing of the national anthem. Good morning, everyone. My name is Eve Shannon. I'm the executive director of the Yogi Berra Museum and Learning Center. And on behalf of the museum's board of trustees, our staff, our volunteers, as well as our co-hosts, from the Bob Feller Active Valor Award Foundation, I'd like to welcome you all to this special D-Day tribute, honoring the heroes who served our country on June 6th, 78 years ago today. To those who are with us here in the museum and to those watching us remotely, thank you for setting aside this time to remember and to pay respect to the enormous sacrifices made on this day in defense of our freedoms and democratic ideals. And a very special thank you to our featured guests. Here at the Yogi Berra Museum and Learning Center, D-Day, of course, has a very special significance. In sustaining Yogi's legacy, we recall that before he ever put on Yankee pinstripes, Yogi wore a US Navy uniform as a 19-year-old gunner's mate manning a rocket boat off the shores of Normandy. And because we're a baseball museum, we're also very proud to tell the stories of other ball players who stepped away from the game that they loved to serve their country. Bob Feller, Larry Doby, Jerry Coleman, and 35 other Hall of Famers who served during World War II. But even as we honor this history, it feels worth noting that the fight for our freedoms that has reached such iconic status on June 6, 1944, remains ongoing today. Active duty military stationed around the world watching this program are protecting these freedoms for us. In Ukraine, people are fighting for these freedoms. And so as we remember the courage of those who participated at D-Day, we also recognize those who are committed to defending our democratic values today. And we give thanks to them as well for their service. It is now my great pleasure to introduce our co-host for today's tribute, Peter Fertig, president of the Bob Feller Active Valor Award Foundation. Thank you, Peter. Thank you, Eve. Good morning, everyone. Could you imagine being a 19-year-old kid far from home in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean? Now, I want you to add to this fact that you're on a secret mission, just about ready to launch the largest naval and land invasion ever conducted in human history. And you are an intricate part of it. Imagine how you would feel sitting in a ship and seeing and hearing missiles and rockets soaring over your head, bullets pouring down all around you and your friends, and yet you still have a job to do with your small team. Your sense of duty as an American sailor is to protect those on the beach, Normandy's beach, and your outcome is still uncertain. I would imagine that baseball is the furthest thing from your mind. Good morning. My name is Peter Fertig, and I'm president of the Bob Feller Active Valor Foundation. Today we have many distinguished guests, and I want to personally thank all of you for being a part of today's program. I have the pleasure and honor of uh, introducing our keynote speaker, uh, the former Secretary of the Navy, who is an intricate part of our foundation uh, with the help of a Marine component by naming Jerry Coleman to it, Secretary Ray Mavis. 
Mr. Secretary. Well, morning, everybody, in this wonderful place. Um, two of the most special things to talk about the Navy and baseball. So on this 70th, 78th anniversary of one of the most revered days in American history, we're here to honor an iconic American hero, even though he did not like to be called a hero. Part of an entire generation of heroes. He was also a member of another much smaller group, great athletes, baseball players, who stopped their careers to defend this country. We're here because the Bob Feller Act of Valor Foundation, the, the another American hero, another Major League Baseball player, who in the heart of his career was the first major league player to enlist, to fight for America. He served on the USS Alabama in the Pacific, eight battle stars, Bob Feller. And because of this museum and its teaching component and because of the foundation, and because of so many others, Yogi Berra's World War II service is getting to be deservedly well known, but it deserves repeating over and over again. Signed by the Yankees in 43, 18 years old, out of St. Louis, he joined the Navy after only one minor league season. And in his words, he got bored with basic training in the Navy, so he volunteered to go on this secret mission of missile boats, even though he admitted at the time he didn't know what a missile boat was. Well, what it was was very secret and also incredibly dangerous. He was assigned to the USS Bayfield as a second-class seaman. Today, that's a seaman apprentice, the second lowest rank <laughs> that you can have in the Navy, as a gunner's mate. And at 4.30 in the morning, 78 years ago, he was not on the Bayfield. The Bayfield launched his missile boat, manned by six people, one officer, five enlisted, 36 feet long, so not even as long as this room. 48 rockets, 250 caliber machine guns, which Yogi Berra manned one, and two 30 caliber machine guns. And in his words, when they let them, when they pushed off from the Bayfield, he said, we were expendable as hell. They were in charge of making sure or trying to protect the infantry that was going ashore. And they were doing that by engaging enemy machine gun nests that were pouring fire down on the waves coming into the beach. And his boat was at both Omaha and Utah beaches that day. And they engaged these machine gun nests. If you're engaging a machine gun nest, with your, with your machine guns, you're close enough for theirs. This is one, and this is a completely open boat. You talk about a risky endeavor. He said that it looked like fireworks going off, and it was nothing like he'd ever seen in his 19 years, and it's nothing like any of us have ever seen. He made it through D-Day unscathed. But he was wounded in the second invasion of France, southern France. He was wounded in his left hand. 
and the Navy awarded him the Purple Heart, although I read when I was reading about this that he wouldn't wear it because he didn't want his mother to worry about him. And that when he finally asked for it, the Navy's paperwork had somehow gotten fouled up and he never got the Purple Heart. I wish I had known about that when I was secretary. We would have gotten that Purple Heart to the family. But while he stands out, as he certainly should, he was far from alone. An astounding 60% of major league starters in 1941 served in World War II. 60%. And Yogi Berra wasn't even counted as one of these because he wasn't in the majors when World War II started. But he came home to one of the great baseball careers, one of the great catchers, one of the great baseball players of all time. And all around you see this, this 19-year career, 10 World Series, wins 14 World Series, participated in 15 uh, consecutive All-Star nods, three most valuable players, and was in the mix to be MVP almost every single year. 39 baseball Hall of Famers served in World War II. An astonishing number. And there's this unique intersection between baseball and the military. And they bear so much in common. In both, individuals can earn special recognition, can stand out. But in both, you will not succeed without the entire team. You will not succeed without teamwork. And this is so well exemplified by Yogi Berra, putting service to the nation and to others above his own career, doing something much bigger than himself. That's America at its best. That continues to this day through this museum and through the Bob Feller Act of Valor Foundation, the Jerry Coleman Award, honoring people in the military and in baseball who go above and beyond in their service to their communities and to their fellow people. I've always called the Navy and Marines America's away team because when sailors and Marines are doing their job, they're a long, long way from home. And it's important to connect those doing the defending with those being defended, particularly in these days of the all-volunteer service where less than 1% of America wears the fabric of America. One of the big privileges of being secretary and one of the big responsibilities is you get to name all Navy ships. There's no process. There's no board. There, you just name them. <laughs> whatever you want to name them. And so in that spirit, I named the USS Cooperstown to honor that close connection between baseball and the military. I named it at induction weekend, at Hall of Fame induction weekend. And I hope, and I know that the commissioning date of the Cooperstown gets pushed back, but when it's commissioned to join the fleet, it's going to be commissioned in New York Harbor. And I know that this museum will have a large part of that, and I know that so many of you, I hope, will be able, able to attend that. 39 Hall of Famers. 39 of the very best to have ever played the game served in World War II. And today, every major league team, every one of them, does something, usually every game, to showcase our veterans, to showcase our active duty. And they're carrying on the legacy of Yogi Berra and so many others.
So Yogi Berra, Hall of Famer in baseball. Yogi Berra, Hall of Famer in service to the nation. Yogi Berra, Hall of Famer as an example to others and Hall of Famer as a role model that we can all look up to. On this day, 78 years later, when just about everybody who participated in D-Day is gone, thank you to Yogi Berra, to the other Major League Baseball players, and to all those Americans who risk their tomorrows for our todays. Thank you all very much. Thank you, Mr. Secretary. My name is Dean Karyanis. I'm the host of the History Author Show on iHeartRadio. I'm also a contributor to the New York Sun. And more than any of those things today, I stand here with all of you in awe, not just of the greatest generation on D-Day and what they did 78 years ago, but also of everybody watching, all the military members serving overseas who are watching today. You are the ones who pick up that torch, and today we hope you'll get some inspiration from the discussion that we're gonna have about what it meant to put on your uniform back then and how you're going to do those duties today, how you do it so that all of us could enjoy this beautiful New Jersey day today so we can hear that national anthem and not Deutschland und Baralis, which is what we probably would have been listening to had those men failed on D-Day. So with that said, I want to start right off with Secretary Mavis. Sir, your predecessor as Secretary of the Navy back in World War II, Frank Knotts, Knox, he, he had that moment where the world changes for the whole country, but it changes specifically for him that morning, his duty and his obligations change. And so we wanted to ask you about that in light of those members serving overseas right now who may be called upon at any moment to defend the shipping lanes in the Black Sea where the Ukraine war is taking place, where Russia has now occupied all their ports. So when they go into battle, when the Secretary of Navy has to send them in maybe to do convoy duty today, how is that similar to the responsibilities on that day of infamy where Secretary Knox is suddenly goes from overseeing a peacetime Navy to overseeing a nation at war? Well, <clears throat> Frank Knox was a newspaper editor who, by the way, was the Republican vice presidential nominee in 36 with Alf Landon. <laughs> and I looked up some numbers because there were, the job of the Secretary of the Navy is to recruit, train, and equip. So you've got to make sure you've got enough people that they're trained in the right way and that they have the right equipment, the ships, the aircraft, the weapon systems to do their job. And so on D-Day, there were 5,300 ships off the coast of Normandy, 5,300. 500 of those were warships. 204 were American. There were 53,000 U.S. sailors off the coast that day. And Frank Knox, who had died in 44, but he was responsible for making sure that all of those people got there, that they were trained correctly, and that those ships got there. In 1940, the U.S. Navy had 190,000 people. On, on December 7, 1941, the Navy had 377,000, which is sort of close to what we have today. By the end of the war, in August of 1945, 3,400,000 people. That's the increase. The ships went from 380 in 1940 to more than 6,000 at the end of the war. The aircraft went from 2,000 to more than 50,000. So that was what Frank Knox faced that day. He had a very small Navy, and it's smaller after Pearl Harbor. He didn't have the people. They hadn't been trained, but the one thing he did have was he had the support 
of the American people. The whole country was galvanized by this. And so ramping up that construction, ramping up the aircraft, ramping up all the training bases that you had to, and taking so many people like Yogi Berra into the service. So you fast forward to today. I mean, I was a wartime Navy secretary. Not the same kind of war, but the war in Afghanistan. And one of the things you have to do today that they were doing then, because the increase between 1938 and 1941, because war seemed to be imminent, is you not only have to worry about today, but you've got to worry about what comes next. You've got to be prepared for the unexpected. And so you're not just building those ships, because it takes a long time to build a ship. It takes a long time to increase the size of the fleet. It, and those ships are going to be out there for 30, 35 years. So if we do send convoys into the Black Sea, those ships had to be planned a decade ago. Those sailors have had to be trained. Most of those ships which will participate got built during my service or got contracted for during my service. And so you have to build for specific things. We had to build air, air power for Afghanistan because 40% of the air power came off carriers during a, into a landlocked country like Afghanistan. And we had more than 20,000 Marines in Afghanistan. But it's what comes next. It's what are the next risk. And nobody could have foreseen Ukraine. Um, in 2008, 2009, 2010, when many of these ships were being built. And that's what the Secretary of the Navy today is going to be worried about. Not only providing, if the President decides, the ships and the people and the aircraft for convoy duty. And Ukraine is blockaded and it's going to cause a worldwide It's not lifted. Um, but what comes two years from now, what comes ten years from now, uh, who are series going to be, what's then, and that's to keep one eye very much on today, but you've got to keep the other eye on the future as long as ten years out. You mentioned not knowing what's coming, and for you, in a cabinet position, that's one obligation, but it reminds me of what they face there on D-Day, where they don't know what's going to happen. As you said, Yogi gets in that boat and he doesn't know where they're going to send them. D-Day is kept so, so secret for that whole time, and yet they get on the boat, even though they don't know. Your father says, hey, that's my duty. I'm going to do it. As he yeah. said, we've got to beat them Nazis. So that's it. We loved America. So they, so they do it. And so I, I thank them again for their service. Admiral Massa, I wanted to ask you a question about the Great War, to go back. We had many baseball players back then, including Walter Rabbit Marinville of the Braves, Sailor Bob Shawkey of the New York Yankees. They both serve on battleships. I always like when I talk with baseball author Jim Leake about the way that they would apply those baseball skills. If you needed to throw a grenade right into those trenches back in the Great War, a baseball player was perfect for that. So they applied a lot of those same skills. So. What were their experiences like? And when you look back as an admiral and you think of those early days of this modern military when the U.S. becomes a world power in the Great War, what was it like just for those baseball players that are serving on there? Well, thank you for the question. And I also want to uh, say hello to all our remote viewers. And I want to thank you all for your service wherever you might be. And it really, my comments really uh, go to the answer to the question, which is, uh, we stand on the shoulders of our great enlisted personnel and those sailors that, that do the hard jobs every day, and we thank you for it. And I know that this is going out to all services, but uh, anyway, welcome and thank you for joining us today. So Rabbit uh, Marinville, Walter, uh, I, I love that guy. Uh, and he kind of reminds me in a manner of speaking of Billy Martin. 
And uh, there's a long, long uh, story about, you know, Jerry Coleman was the rookie of the year in 1951 for the Yankees' second base, serves in both World War II and in Korea with 47 combat missions. When he comes back, he's lost his position to Billy Martin. So Billy Martin um, gets traded, you know, several years hence because he and uh, Mickey would get in too much trouble. So back to Rabbit. Rabbit, you know, Rabbit was traded to four or five different teams in his career because he was that guy in the dugout like Billy might have been, you know, for the Yankees. So it kind of puts context to it. But uh, Rabbit enlisted. He wasn't drafted, and, and, and he served in, in a brand-new... Uh, not just a brand new battleship, but it was it was the first of the second class of battleships, the USS Pennsylvania. And now his service was uh, west coast of the United States, out of San Pedro, Long Beach, and uh, and he he served there for just a little under a year. Yeah, but uh, there's a great story about uh, about how he kind of mixed it up on the Pennsylvania. So understand that this is a flashy new ship. Everybody. Uh, wanted to visit it, tour it, come aboard, you know, politicians, uh, the general public, this type of thing. And so, uh, you know, he's just one of those guys that uh, was, had an infectious enthusiasm. So on the 10th of November of uh, 1918, he starts this story to uh, his shipmates that, wait till tomorrow, I've got some exciting news, you're going to be blown away by this news, <laughs> whatever the communication metaphor. Everywhere he went, he goes, tomorrow's going to be amazing. You can't you know, predict what it's going to be, but it's going to be awesome. And so uh, what happened at 11 a.m. on 11-11-1918, World War I, the armistice uh, is declared. So, so his shipmates you know, start telling the officers, and it gets to the commanding officer of the ship. So he gets called in, and he said... Uh, well, you know, how did you know about this armistice? And, you know, how did, you know, what, what do you know that we don't know? And is there a connection, you know, to your, you know, your major league baseball and et cetera? And, you know, uh, did you compromise any, you know, privileged information? And he said, I don't know what you're talking about, Captain. Today's my birthday. <laughs> so, so this is a really interesting guy. I would have loved to have had lunch with him somewhere in a, a cool place that served adult beverages. So uh, Bob Shockey, uh, interesting guy, in, uh, in, in, in case you didn't know, uh, it just worked out that on uh, opening day of 1923 in Yankee Stadium, it was his turn to pitch. I think the Yankees may have started on the road that year, and it was his turn to pitch. So opening day, the house that Ruth built, the very first game, New York Yankee Stadium, uh, Shockey pitches a complete game, and, and, the, and, the, and the babe goes yard, three-run tater, home run. Uh, Yankees went 4-1. But he served on the USS Arkansas. And, and again, didn't see war service, but it didn't, didn't, that's not what this is about. It's about the willingness and, the, and being ready to serve in any capacity or call. So, uh, so in terms of the World War I, it was a little bit different than World War II. We can come back to that in a minute. But... Um, the, the volunteered, went out there, did their, did their duty, did it at a high level, had some fun, came home as veterans. The ones that did come home, the ones that didn't, of course, something that I mentioned in, in that New York Sun column that I always think of, I think it's, it's easy to see a Yogi Berra and say how much he contributed, but as Abraham Lincoln said during the Civil War, there was barely a regiment in the Civil War from which you couldn't pick a president, a cabinet secretary, uh, even the whole Supreme Court, because they, they are the finest, and everybody that's watching overseas right now is the finest that we have in the United States military. And you lose 2,000 men just in that, the opening hours of D-Day, and you think, how many Yogi Berra's were in there, mm -hmm. right? How many presidents did we lose? How many, how many people who would have made contributions to culture and to the United States? And yet, they went and did it, which is why we are here today. Luke Eplin, author of Our Team, I wanted to go to you next and ask about the morale, because it's easy to let this become a little maudlin because it is war, and these, these men are facing death on that day. And they know if they're going on a ship, they know they're fighting the mighty Imperial Japanese Navy. So they're, they're all 
going to do a mission and yet there is that danger. So morale is a very real question. We've just gotten caught with our pants down in Pearl Harbor and these major leaguers decide they're gonna do their bit and go. And so I wanted to ask you about that as an author. How does baseball help unify America during the 1940s for the war effort, specifically at Naval Station Norfolk? These guys are needing to go and they're needing to participate. So how does Sailor Morale, let me read a, a few names here, of course Bob Feller, but also Satchel Paige, Larry Doby, Billy Beck, and Jackie Robinson. These guys are going to have opportunities in peacetime as well. So how does the game of baseball help their morale or help them contribute to keeping up the morale of the American public back home? You really can't underestimate how intertwined baseball and World War II were at that time. It was central to, um, to the mission of, of the armed, armed services in, in numerous ways. Um, when Bob Feller enlists in 1941, this is two days after Pearl Harbor, he is driving from Iowa to Chicago and hears about Pearl Harbor on the radio and immediately decides that he's going to enlist. His enlistment ceremony is broadcast live from coast to coast over the radio. It is a bonanza for the armed services to have a figure like Bob Feller do something like this. And he's used in promotional purposes across the country for the next year. He's pitching the Norfolk Naval Base. He's also sort of going around in barnstorming games and pitching to raise funds for the Navy and for the armed services, things like this. And these, these are centrally important games for, for these sorts of things. But Bob Feller wants to fight. And he says to himself that, that I would rather go onto a ship and serve my country than do it here on the state sides doing that. So when, everywhere that he goes in the South Pacific, Baseball is also central. Whenever people would, whenever ships would capture islands in the South Pacific, one of the first things they would do was bulldoze a portion of the field, build a baseball diamond right there. Whenever people are stationed in, in sort of the Ulithia Toll, uh, where they had a R&R island called Mog Mog, there would be teams of major league players that would fly in and play baseball games for the troops. They would do sort of an island hopping tour of these islands and sort of to boost morale, to sort of keep the troops going. Um, Major League Baseball was donating balls, bats, all these sorts of things to the armed services to be used at bases and to be given out to, to troops and things like that. Um, and Bob Feller himself talks about while he's on the USS Alabama, the great warship, he listened to the 1944 World Series over shortwave radio whenever he could. And it was tremendously important for him to be hearing about baseball. When he comes back, in 1945, after more than a year and a half at sea, he tells his first interviewer that malted milk, duck hunting, and baseball games are the three things we look forward to. And so <laughs> just the knowledge that Major League Baseball is still playing, I think, is tremendously important to these people. And then, of course, once these men came back from the war in 1946, they used baseball as a means of sort of integrating themselves back into civilian life. Baseball was a cohesive fabric that made them feel that the war had come to an end and that they could resume their life. Major League Baseball shattered all attendance records in 1946 with people rushing back to the baseball stadiums to, to sense a sort of have a feeling of normalcy, not only for the white major leagues, but for the black Negro leagues. Negro League attendance also shattered all records in 1946. And at that time, there was this thing called the Double V Campaign, where you wanted sort of victory uh, abroad against the Nazis and others sort of in the Imperial Japanese Army, but you also wanted victory at home against segregation, against Jim Crow, against all of these other things. So it's no surprise that integration then happens very soon after uh, the troops come home that was sort of seeded during this time. So baseball, uh, baseball during World War II is, is just, I mean, we can't overstate its importance. I want to come back to that idea of this is a, uh, this is a segregated military at the time, and part of what, ex what you're saying is the good part that comes out of it is Eisenhower specifically sees African-American troops and sees what they're doing and sees their bravery, and we all know about the red tails and, and people like that in baseball then, plays a role in that too, which I just love. But I wanted to move on to Larry Barra first. Sir, you grew up with a father who is an icon. I don't know if, if 
how much that's top of your mind, right? Because I feel like if it was me, I would be writing stuff down that he said all the time and asking a ton of questions. But of course, you're living your, your home life here in New Jersey, so it's not only that. He's, he's dad to you. And, and yet, he's had this service, and I am sure there were times when you spoke to him about it. So I wanted to ask you about that. Was there a story that stood out to you, a story that he opened up about when he maybe hadn't before, something that isn't isn't in the, I guess, a lot of these guys have a little bit of their standard speech, which is always still beautiful that they're humble. But was there any standout story that your father told you about his service that jumps out to you that you'd like to share with all of us and everyone around the world? Uh, his, well, his military service, the best story I ever had, I was probably over 50 years old when he finally opened up. I mean, I always knew he was at Normandy. I knew about the fireworks, and I knew that he played ball, but he never really discussed what he did. I knew he fired a machine gun, but he never, if he fired it at anybody, he never mentioned it. And after a long period of time, we went to see Saving Private Ryan. The first year that movie came out. And after the movie was over, we were walking out of the theater, and my father seemed a little emotional. And I asked him, I said, are you okay? And he says, yeah, but, I, you know, but, and he started talking about that, that was some scene, the opening scene, because he says, I was right there. You know, I wasn't on the beach, but, you know, I was only three, four hundred yards offshore, so I saw a lot what was going on. And he said that uh, the first day, he just did his duty. He fired his machine gun, you know, helped me with He said that the second and third days were the bad days. And I said, well, why? He said that, unfortunately, one of our missions was to remove the bodies out of the water. Oh, was to remove the bodies out of the water. And he started to cry. <laughs> but uh, most of the time, he never really talked about it, but that was the only major story told you he just said he when he got his he when he turned 18 he he filled out his little draft thing or what you know the registration and then he said and uh he got a call that he had to report to to his draft board but they said yeah i guess back in those days you could wait 30 days you could pick which service you wanted to go in so he went home and his brother mike was in the Aleutians, and his uncle john was in the navy and my uncle Mike said, you joined the Navy, you don't want to do what I was doing. I was in the pits with bayonets with the Japanese. And he goes, join the Navy, it's a lot safer. And then you hear the story about the bullets flying all over the place. And according to my father, uh, eventually um, most of the people on his boat were either hit by shrapnel or, or some bullets. He said one guy, uh, I don't know if it was his commanding officer, the bullet hit him in one cheek and grazed the other cheek. <laughs> so he couldn't sit down for about three weeks. But uh, <laughs> so, but uh, so Yogi could teach him to sit like a pitcher. pitcher yeah. <laughs> but uh, again, and it, what's what's really funny is when we were growing up, his he never like I said he never talked about his favorite movies were World War II movies and and westerns. I mean, we must have watched Guadalcanal Diary fifty times. You know, uh, all the big ones, Walk in the Sun. <laughs> Everything, yeah. Usually they say, authors I've spoken to, that veterans will open up once they get to 70, that something opens up in them. Mm -hmm. And they, they begin to want to tell those stories because the stories die with all of us. So if you have anybody out there, anyone wants to tell their story, ask those questions or at least mm -hmm. be open to the answers. My favorite story about your father was, uh, he says he, all those planes are coming more than he ever saw in his life. And he finally manages to shoot down one yeah. And it's a friendly plane. It's yeah. an American yeah. pilot and a bunch of British soldiers that are there. And he says they race over, they fish him out of the water, and nobody, nobody was hurt. But he says they taught me some new curse words. Okay. Right? Well, they wanted the orig originally when he said when they raced over to get to the guy, the whole crew wanted to beat the crap out of the German pilot. <laughs> <laughs> he finds out it's an American pilot, and, you, and we go, "What are you doing?" What are you doing? And, he's, and they, they say, "You were supposed to let us know if you come below the cloud cover." He yep. said, shoot anything down under the cloud course. <laughs> they, they did. <laughs> they, they didn't know what they were dealing with as far as a guy who could spot and hit his target. I, just in talking about the uh, dad had a lot of friends.
that weren't ball players that did serve and were in the Pacific and and uh, Anzio would and play, but none of them would really talk about it either. And I'm a big history buff. When I found out that my father was in Normandy, I was like nine or ten years old. I started reading, and I read a lot of the Longest Day from you know Cornelius Ryan and all of them. And I started reading all these books. And after I finished that, I moved on to the Civil War, and I kept. But I always was interested. But to get them to really pull out, you know, to pull, they wouldn't, they wouldn't talk about. It. They were just saying we lost too many friends and stuff, and I rather keep it to myself. Secretary Mabus, I want to come back to you on this question of morale on the home front now. Baseball players continue to play as well as those that go overseas, and that can be a little bit dicey for the Roosevelt administration at the time because you see these young, healthy men, and you know your husband, father, son is over there serving, but also baseball plays such an important role in normalcy at home. This is the American pastime. We are going to continue it. So how, how do they balance that? And you looking back at that, how important do you think it was to keep baseball going so that people at home working in those factories, double, triple swing shifts, were able to have something to enjoy even as the nation was facing these mortal threats on both coasts? No, I know it's something that got debated then. It got debated when I was there in terms of playing at different different sports at different times, but I think it was incredibly important because it was, as you pointed out, it was something normal. It was something that a Yogi Berra, Bob Feller could look forward to coming back, and it was the millions of people who were out there serving in the Pacific, in Europe, duck hunting, <laughs> baseball. Um, to come, to come back to, and it was, it was something that tied them together because Yogi Berra listened to the World Series on shortwave radio while he was in, in the Navy. It was not just for the people at home, it was also for the people fighting. This is one of the things you're fighting for. This is one of the things that's uniquely American. This is part of the freedom that we, um, that we see. And it wasn't baseball. But when I was secretary, the government in uh, 20, 2012, or 2013, shut down. And it was the week before Army-Navy football game. And there were all sorts of people in the Pentagon that wanted to cancel the game. Um, and. I wasn't one of those. I thought it was important to to show that normalcy. Um, and so I looked it up. There had been 14 times when things had happened before an Army-Navy game. The government had shut down. They played two days after John Kennedy was killed as president at the request of the Kennedy family. A Navy man. Yeah. And so Part of it was also that Navy was way better um, that year. <laughs> and um, It's not fair. There's nobody here to speak up for Army, so I didn't do it. <laughs> but one of the things that was unusual is that sports in the military academies are not paid for with tax dollars. They're paid for with booster dollars and uh, alumni dollars and things like that. And so the only thing that we, everything was paid for by that, except transportation for Army to come to the game. And so um, they said, well, we can't spend tax money to do that. So we got the Navy uh, Academy Alumni Association to write a check to bring Army down. <laughs> and we beat them really badly. <laughs> You think they'd be able to march? Traveling across land is kind of their thing. But. And I do want to point out that uh, Ole Miss ROTC is half of this, uh, half of these four people: <laughs> Admiral Masso and me. Hotty toddy. <laughs> <laughs> 
I wanted to ask you both then about something, something that I became aware of through the Bob Feller Foundation, and that's that although, as you were just mentioning, the service academies still have baseball, the Defense Department only has softball. And so I wanted to ask the two of you uh, about that. What's the, how does the legacy of baseball change? Well, the legacy of, the, of baseball hasn't changed a single bit. Uh, and going back in history, uh, we had a vice admiral at the time named uh, William S. Sims. And it was real interesting between the two, the Great War and World War II. Uh, and we had uh, people that served in ships that uh, identified as Irish American, Italian American. It really, if you think about old New York City, it was very similar in the Navy. So what William S. Sims uh, sought to do was uh, to, first of all, create a culture of fitness, which means you, know, you do things, tugs of war and all these things, but he wanted to have ship competitions. And so he promoted this, and it was a big deal. And, and of course, chief among the interests of the sailors was baseball. But uh, there wasn't really uh, the same uh, opportunity, say, for softball, and I played uh, what I would I played fast pitch softball until I was 55 years old, and I think you, Larry, you still play, right? right. Uh, yeah, and I mean I and so softball gives you it slows the game down a little bit, but the other thing is is uh, uh, real estate on military bases is limited, and so uh, if it was a a fast a, a hardball field, this field you know you would require a larger field and then fewer fields. So uh, it was an economy kind of measure. You know, you can have six, seven fields. I've played softball in Iceland, Rota, Spain, Yokosuka, Japan. I've played softball around the world in, in, a, in a Navy connection. And, uh, and I don't think you would have been able to do that. And then there's, you know, I was a I played shortstop in softball, but I was a catcher when I played, you know, in, in hardball and American Legion and all that. But, um, uh, you know, it's just safer, it's a little slower, the fields are, you know, a little bit more economical in terms of size, you don't require the same footprint, thus you can have more fields, and um, it, it, I don't think it's changed one iota, it's not a cultural thing, it's just an opportunity thing, and I'll tell you, the, uh, nobody plays softball at a higher level than our people, in the, men and women in the armed forces. To know. I feel like I have to get one of those mitts. The way I, I was uh, talking about the softball. Uh, in New Jersey here, there's a place called Picatinny Arsenal. And uh, three years in a row, I went up uh, with a team called the Boys of Summer. We played against the Picatinny Arsenal team. Now, the Boys of Summer team is guys 65, 60, 65, and over. And we went up to play this one game, and the Marine Corps had set a team up to play against us and they walked on the field and the pitcher was this big guy six foot three 235 pounds 32 inch waist and then the rest of the team walked on and I said you gotta be kidding me <laughs> they put this team again I don't think the old, I think the oldest guy on the team was 32 we're 65, and I actually, I got a base hit off of the pitcher, and I get a runner, because I had bad time, I had bad knees, but the guy goes, he comes up to me, and he goes, that's a great hit against us, and I said, wow, I said, I appreciate it, but these guys, they hit balls, we never saw them come down, but uh, back to the, with the baseball in World War II, if you see, if you watch the old World War II movies, there's always a segment where they're listening to the radio or, or, or troops or seamen are arguing, oh, Brooklyn's going to beat the Cardinals today, the Yankees. Mm -hmm. Don't worry, the Yankees will beat them all in the world. There's always a baseball connection in those movies in, made in, in the early 40s all the way through to the 50s. But uh, all the time they were mentioning Brooklyn or somebody. Larry, I wanted to ask you about how that D-Day service you mentioned your father speaking about it and only later bringing it on, but how did his service, because he's gonna come back to the major leagues, then there's gonna be this desegregation. And also, Luke, you can get in on this too, but the, the idea of when they're serving, it's just Americans. And it, it takes on 
it takes on those hyphens you were talking about, right? We're not Greek Americans anymore, and mm -hmm. Italian Americans and Irish and African Americans. It breaks that bond between that mm -hmm. hyphen, and we all just become Americans, or they do. How did that impact him? How did it impact other soldiers that come back? Mm -hmm. A guy like Jackie Robinson, mm -hmm. yeah. when they're, they're then going to go and try to desegregate baseball, and they can say, hey, we served over there, and when we were bleeding, when we were on that, yeah. that rocket boat, we were in that plane, Nobody, nobody cared about the color of our skin or our, our creed or, or right. anything like that. It just mattered we were Americans. We were going to beat the Nazis together. How does that help them when it comes time to desegregate well, baseball? If you, if you knew my father later on, you know that uh, your race, creed, or whatever, never, didn't matter to him. And uh, he might have picked up quite a bit of it in the Navy where everybody had to serve together. Be a, you had to have a team. If the team doesn't work, you lose. And uh, he, all through his career uh, in baseball, and as far as I've, I've known, uh, he always said, you, you, you have to play as a team. You can't have one guy hitting 50 home runs and the rest of the team doing nothing. You have to, uh, you know, you need to have the guy to do the bunt, the sacrifice. You need the guy to hit to the opposite field. You need this. He goes, runs win games, not home runs. but. Getting back to the part with the, uh, he didn't know what race, creed, color was, or whatever, and he brought that all through his life. He never, uh, as growing up, we never heard anything like that in our house. I mean, you could come to my house in the morning, and we would have, the, we would have the black policemen, the the Irish firemen. They, they'd all be sitting around, all wanting to have coffee with Dad in the kitchen, and there they'd be. The whole, you know, Montclair, we're, we're, we moved there when I was 10, so that's basically more of what I remember. But that just teamwork was all I think he got out of it, just to make sure everybody stays together and is friendly and there's no animosity. or they, And if you're honest and true, you can win all the time. I wish I could be more optimistic about it, but Larry Doby had a sort of opposite experience of what you were saying where, where you broke down the hyphen. I, I think that Larry Doby did not feel that. Um, whenever he boarded a train to go to Great Lakes Station in Chicago, he was on a train with uh, black and white uh, recruits and a lot of people he recognized from high school that he had competed against in sports and things like that. And he figured that since they were all on the same train they were, and going to, to do the same mission, they were all going to be together. But as soon as he gets off the train at Great Lakes, the black recruits are separated immediately from the white recruits. And Larry Doby said that that was the moment that segregation really punched him in the face. He was like, this is my country that I'm doing, that I'm fighting for, and they're treating me as second class as soon as I get off there. And it was a wound that I don't think ever really healed in him fully. And so whenever he does go to the Cleveland baseball team in 1947, and certain players turn their back to him, it was a feeling that was recognizable to him from having served in the Navy. Um, I will say that whenever he goes to Mogmog, which is in the, the atoll where he serves, he, the, the island is so small that it, segregation was really difficult to enforce then. And he did get to play with uh, major league players like Mickey Cochran, I mean, not Mickey Cochran, Mickey Vernon, who was on the, the mm -hmm. same island. And Mickey Vernon wrote a letter to Clark Griffith, who was the owner of the Washington Senators, and said, there's a player here you've got to see, he's amazing. But because Larry Doby was black, Griffith never followed up on it. And so Doby, um, I think Doby's experience in the military was important to him, but also um, wounding. Yeah, if I can pile on to Luke's brilliant point, a couple things. Mickey Vernon was a Navy Lieutenant Commander, and he lost his son on D-Day. And it was a great mm -hmm. tragedy for him. But, I, but I'm a, a student and devotee of the Negro League Baseball, and, and I'm gonna tell you right now, the Hall of Fame of, of, of Cooperstown is now uh, accepting records and, and things of, of players, achievements of players from the Negro Leagues. And so I'm gonna predict that we're gonna go from 39 to about 42 or three. And the, the other poignant point was that uh, while a lot of our um, white Ball players got to barnstorm and sell war bonds and play baseball all war, uh, and with with notable exceptions. But uh, the Negro League players went right into the to the battle. Uh, they di they didn't get to sell war bonds. They didn't barnstorm. They were out there doing God's work, 
at the tip of our nation's spear in war, in combat arms, certainly in the Navy. They were in the Pacific fighting the, the Japanese. And, uh, and, and that's a vast difference from what the other experience was for other ball players. I'm looking at giant Yogi Berra, probably one of the most optimistic guys ever. So I like that. I like that today we can look back and stand on the shoulders of their sacrifice and suffering, both in the war, but also then a long fight, fighting segregation and, and getting much, many more opportunities after. I want to run the basis here with each of you as we close before we have taps and just ask what closing thought you'd like to share with our audience here, but also streaming around the world on various military bases and all the ships at sea. What do you want them to think of when they think of baseball players in World War II and their sacrifice in general or specifically in the media land? Well, that, that the, the main thing is we are all Americans. And that whether you're a great athlete or just, you know, a kid from Choctaw County, Mississippi, the first duty is service. And the people that have raised their hands today, how important that is, that they follow in a long line that D-Day was a part of and that Major League Baseball has been a part of, but that uh, the service to doing something bigger than yourself is one of the most important things you can do. And to sort of end with what we were just talking about, that we are still struggling, and we were struggling then in forming that more perfect union. Um, the Marines because they were so segregated, they made the black Marines build their own basic training camp, Montford Point. Uh, they wouldn't let them go to Paris Island. But the fact that they went and served and then came back and fought. And the final thing, the military is so much stronger because it's diverse. A diverse military force is a much stronger force, whether it's color, whether it's gender, whether it's sexual orientation, it doesn't matter. If you can do the job, that's the only requirement, and that makes you a patriot in this country. Okay, uh, will the audience please rise? Again, that event was titled Sacrifice and Courage, a tribute to D-Day. You can learn more about the legacy of ball players in uniform at activevaloraward.org or the Bob Feller Active Valor Foundation. And you can also visit the Yogi Berra Museum and Learning Center, which is a truly special place to visit. Don't settle for seeing it online. Go yourself, interact with it, especially if you have a young person. It is a really magical place and it makes you feel good my sincere thanks to both of these organizations for asking me to helm this event. It was a true honor and it was really a humbling experience. My thanks also to Secretary Mabus, Admiral Masso, Luke Eplin, who again is the author of Our Team, the epic story of four men and the World Series that changed baseball, as well as Larry Berra. It was really special to meet him and to watch him tell these stories of his father and be willing to share them. If you enjoyed watching the conversation, please do subscribe at my YouTube channel and 
enjoy future journeys in the Wayback Machine. You can also visit me at historyauthor.com or find me on social media. There are over 250 interviews with authors there. You're sure to find something you like, especially check out Jim Leak's books. You may have heard me mention Jim Leak there, and he's written some great books on World War I and the baseball players who contributed there. So check those out for sure. That's it for this installment of the History Author Show. I hope you'll join us for our next all-new interview right here on iHeartRadio or wherever you enjoyed this journey into yesterday. Until that next trip into the past together, on behalf of the Yogi Berra Museum and the Bob Feller Active Valor Foundation, thanks so much for time traveling with us today. Thank you for your service, everybody around the world, and have a great week. We still call it Broadway, but what's in a name? Take it from Georgie, it isn't the same. On the east, sign west, sign things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore.